A quick warning that this episode contains references to sex, plus some strong language. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Hello, Rachel. Hey, good morning. That's Rachel. So we all had expectations when we graduated high school, right? Here's what Rachel was expecting to do when she graduated from high school. I mean, I was about to go live my dream. I'd gotten into Barnard College and was going to move to New York, which is like, you know, it's what most of all of us want. So uh, that's where I was going. And here's what Rachel was not expecting to do when she graduated from high school. But yeah, they definitely told me, you know, you have the good cancer. And um, and then they told me right away, like, this is the protocol. It will take about four months of your life. It will be chemotherapy uh, followed by radiation. And then you're free to go. Like, go grow up like you were supposed to. Right. Now, I know from reviewing my high school diaries that our expectations rarely match up with reality, but it's usually not this out of sync. Rachel wouldn't get to be the New York City college girl that she dreamed of being because at age 18, she had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And if you're thinking to yourself, now is that the good lymphoma or the bad lymphoma? It's the good one. So doctors were really positive. And Rachel did what her doctors told her to do. She put her life and her dreams on hold so that she could live. I really trusted my doctor and I believed I would get through it. Like I never, death was not a word I knew (laughs) or faced. Um, And so I just saw, okay, uh, four months takes me through to October or whatever it was. And like, I'm going to move on, right? Her doctors were right, and Rachel did her radiation and chemotherapy treatment, and she moved on, just like she expected. She even ended up going to Barnard. Her dreams were restarted. I did the four-year undergrad degree. And she had lots of adventures, and she ended up working in a field she loved. So I lived in New York, worked for another year on, you know, I'm Canadian, so I had the work visa for a year. Then went traveling again all over um, Southeast Asia with a then-boyfriend. And then went back to school to do um, a master's in urban planning, sustainability. So then I moved to Montreal for a year and then Toronto for two years. I was in graduate school. I was nearly done, um, you know, and I was killing it. And then I had a pretty cool job at this sustainable business startup and... You know, they were just growing up, they were a startup, and they were like, who do you want to be? What what do you want, essentially? It didn't happen on the timeline that she had wanted, but she was just about to have the exact life that she had dreamed of. And so at really that moment, I was like, I am peaking, right? I'm peaking in life, and anything could happen. Anything could happen which means it did. Rachel was 26 years old. Um, I was having some trouble breathing, very slight. You know when you, also when you don't chew your food well enough and so you feel it going down? Yeah, every day. I've, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
You're a bit not, yeah. not a good chewer. Just eat it all in one bite. Like, that sandwich is done. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> but it, like, kind of hurts. It like, hurts every like, time, you, yeah. You make <laughs> so that, um, and then, yeah, I had trouble breathing when I would sit in certain positions. And then I my voice started getting hoarse to the point where... I visited the doctor and I said, now I can't talk. Like, what's up? And my doctor's there immediately. Alarm bells rang for them. And so then we got the confirmation that the cancer was back. And was it still Hodgkin's lymphoma? Same cancer, same area of my body. It had been nine years since the last time Rachel had cancer and put her dream life on hold. And now, with everything she had wanted so close in reach, her cancer was back? Once again, rudely interrupting the life she was trying to live? Rachel's doctor and her family were still in Vancouver, where she grew up. So even though she loved Toronto and she loved her life there, she packed everything up and moved back home to Vancouver. Of course, I love my parents, but I like them. And so moving in with them is not the horror that it might be for someone else. That part wasn't my problem. But now, you know, now in retrospect, I'm like, no, that's really fucking disruptive. Especially that it was a repeat, you know, when I I was supposed to go off to New York and then I was pulled back to my parents' house and then here I was living my best life and the world was my oyster in Toronto and then I'm back in my parents' house. So it, I think it actually... Now I know that that was part of the trauma. I don't like being taken care of, you know? I was taken care of myself. And then suddenly you can't anymore. I've always been very private about this stuff, and I only shared it with um, a few close friends, or, you know, a small group of close friends, and I basically avoided everyone else. Um, And that was my way of coping. And I like to believe that Nobody knew what I was going through, that, you know, they believed I was out living this great life that I had been, right? What was it, do you think, that kept you from really sharing that experience with the other people who cared about you? I'm The, the look in people's eyes when you tell them horrible things is something that I didn't want to experience more times than I had to. You know, that sympathy look, the sympathy eyes. Oh, yeah. It's even, you know, it's their experience of your story, of what you're telling them. It's like it's already hard enough and you're processing and you're dealing. And then sharing it, I felt it was like I was going to take on their reaction and their pain and their fear. And it was going to compound the hard stuff that I was already feeling. This time, the treatment for Rachel's cancer was more grueling. She had a stem cell transplant, and it worked. And once again, she was young, and she was cancer-free again. Nearly a decade later, Rachel was still in Vancouver. She was 36. She was living in an apartment, not with her parents, although as a person who has repeatedly lived with her parents, I can tell you there's... I mean, there's some things wrong with it, but that's a different podcast. So even though her life had been paused by cancer twice, Rachel's life was moving again, and it was still moving just in that amazing, perfect direction that she had in mind. 
you know, I launched my career. I That's what I did. That's what I did in those intervening years. Um, and I always had one foot out the door because I didn't feel like living there was moving forward, even though by all accounts and on paper, I absolutely was. I took this job a few years ago with this company where I'm at right now, and they have offices all over. And it was that was part of my one foot out the door. It was like, strategically, I could move with this job. And so I had asked if I could move to LA. Could I be transferred to our LA office? Rachel was doing what single people do. She was dating. At the time, her dating app of choice was Tinder, and she met all kinds of guys on Tinder, and she had all kinds of relationships. There was a hot acupuncturist, a white Canadian who spoke fluent Japanese. There was a filmmaker who found the humor in the dark and kind of crappy things in life. And there was this hot surfer dude who lived out of town, but was still fun to chat with. Rachel, um, at this time, she's dating, she's single, she's living her life, and she had been doing the smart thing that women do, which is getting regular screenings for breast cancer. Um, You know, she felt fine. One day she had one of those screenings. They're pretty routine. Um, And then an MRI, and then another. And this is happening right as she's getting ready to move to L.A. and really kick off the next phase of her dream life. So I got a call, you know, the number pops up on my screen. I was in a meeting and I was like, fuck. And they said, we want you to come in for more tests. And I know that on that phone call, that person who's calling you is not allowed to tell you any more information. And I know that from experience. So I said, can you have a doctor call me and explain? This woman called me and she said, your breast... Uh, what we see in your breast has changed um, and we need to explore further to confirm whether it is something of concern. And I, she said, and I'm sorry. And then I said, okay, thank you. And then she said, so there's something else. And that is that in the background of your breast MRI, your chest looks different than it did last year in last year's MRI. And so I want to follow up with that as well with a different test. And so on that phone call, she was essentially telling me, you might have more than one issue. There are a lot of difficult things about a phone call like that. But one thing that is for sure really tough is that one word, might because that word means that Rachel is looking at another few months of tests and diagnoses before she can know anything for sure. So how does a person fill all that time? Aside from, like, going to work and pretending like nothing is happening, even though everything is happening, (laughs) just trying to pretend everything is fine, you're just watching the clock, checking your phone obsessively for absolutely no reason whatsoever, it's not like a phone call could come that would change your entire life or anything. Like, what is a person to do aside from, I guess, building a little nest out of Kleenex and candy wrappers and pre-planning your funeral and picking out the best photos of yourself for that slideshow that everybody makes? Well, 
if you are like Rachel, you think, hold on, I'm still a person in the world. Why don't I just live like it? So shortly after that phone call, one of the men that Rachel had met on Tinder, the surfer who lived far away, sent her a message. He was coming into town for an extended work period. So the not sick Rachel would be like, uh, yeah, I'd love to meet up with you, hot surfer guy. So the Rachel who is still waiting for her doctors to tell her WTF is up says the exact same thing. Yeah, let's hang out. They set a date for their date, and it ends up falling the day after her breast biopsy. And so I, like, wore a cute shirt where he couldn't see that I had a bandage on my breast. And um, he was a lot of fun. We had a blast. This guy has no idea that Rachel may or may not be really sick. And Rachel didn't have to be sick. She just got to be a woman on a date with a hot dude. Rachel decides to continue being that person. And there is another phone call. The biopsy showed a new cancer, breast cancer. Rachel and her doctors meet and they do a bunch more tests and they make a plan for a year of treatment and a lumpectomy in her breast to treat her breast cancer. And something else comes up, which is like that there might be another cancer, but they don't know for sure. They got to do more tests. And I asked my doctor uh, at the very beginning, I said, what, um, how am I going to feel? Am I going to lose my hair? Uh, will my immune system be compromised? Can I go swimming? Can I go traveling? Um, I needed to know. I needed to know what the year would look like. It was my way of planning, right? I, I could see it. It wasn't all a big dark mess. Plus, I, I knew what questions to ask because I'd been there before. I'd been sitting right there before. And so I'd been at the cancer center seeing my counselor for an hour. She was helping me cope with the emotional roller coaster. I'd then proceeded to my surgeon's office to have them sign forms to my insurance forms to prove that I had, you know, I was uh, eligible for critical illness funding. So she is, in fact, this fucked up. Um, and then third task was I was going in the next day for um, to get the lump removed from my breast and to biopsy the other cancer. And so my third task, my third chore, was to get um, dye uh, injected into my breast um, for in preparation for the surgery the next day. And and as I was pulling out from the hospital that afternoon, the surfer dude texted me, "Hey, when's this going to happen?" <laughs> and by this, he meant like us, not like. <laughs> When's your when's your surgery? Like he didn't know anything. He didn't know anything. And so I said meet me in my house. <laughs> and so I I like had to clean up all my, you know, my my apartment was like strewn with cancer paperwork. <laughs> this guy, you know, it was a fling and it was like my body was going to be augmented the next day and I didn't know what that was going to look like and it was the beginning of what I knew was going to be a long road. A couple weeks later, she gets another phone call and 
another confirmation that there are two cancers at once because the Hodgkin's lymphoma is back. They say the third time's the charm, and while whoever they were were probably not talking about the third time a person has cancer being the charm, this third time is different for Rachel. So my reflexive reaction or behavior when I was 36 was to do the same as what I had done with the second cancer, which was keep it close. I left work pretty abruptly, and I told my boss, I don't want anyone there to know that I have cancer, so figure out what you're going to tell them. (laughs) I basically designated a few friends as my PR team, and I would tell them everything, because I'm I'm comfortable telling people things one-on-one, but I said, I'm not making all these phone calls, so you can make them for me. But, but don't tell her, but yeah, you can tell him, but yeah. So, like, I was trying to control it. I did the same thing to my parents. I said, you know, you can tell them there's something wrong, but don't tell them what or how fucking brutal it is. <laughs> That's what I did for a period of time. I think it must have been this therapist who shook me out of it, and she said, you seem to have a really strong or a potentially strong support network. And you're telling me that you need support, so why don't you go out and get it? All right, we're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, um, when we come back, we're just going to keep telling the same story. Does that sound good? We're back. Rachel just had a nice little chat with her therapist who was like, you need support? Go out and get it. So um, how do you do that? You can talk to your friends and family. Duh. Yes, do that. But the thing about our friends and family is that they bring all the context of our relationship with them to this situation. You go to dinner with your friend, you're like... So, yeah, it's not the first time, but by the way, so, oh, no, 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 it's two cancers. And, oh, uh, yeah, anyway, um, they're not concerned, and it's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> like the look on their face. Like, I'm going to need two new boobs, but no big deal. They're like, I was about to tell you about my honeymoon. Yeah. It's like, I was about to complain about, you know, like... Uh, yeah, people always do. Oh, I'm not going to tell you my petty. And I'm like, please tell me your petty shit. Like, let's do. have a conversation so I can be your friend, too. Rachel has friends and family, and she can let them in. But all those people also have their own families and their own lives. And in so many ways, we are defined by our relationships. You know, I was pretty used to being single, but was that... When all this stuff of life is torn away from you, 
which again is always my specific trauma, you, your identity becomes this thing, this thing that you fear and that you hate and that you don't want associated with yourself. And you can no longer be, you know, the professional woman or the, you know, I'm climbing the corporate ladder or, oh, I'm busy even, right? <laughs> and, and so I'm not that. And then I was not anybody's wife or mother. And so I felt, I think in my darkest days, I felt totally disoriented. Like I didn't know what I was or where I belonged in life, in the world. Like I didn't know up from down. It's, it's disorientation is my best word for it. But that was the darkest place I went. Because like there is a, I'd say the stories that you see the most about people who are young and who have cancer are that, um, you know, they're, they're getting through this and they're, you know, they're doing it because of their children or, mm -hmm. you know, because they have, you know, a spouse to live for. And there's not mm -hmm. really that I can recall, like, a, a narrative where people are like, I'm doing this because of me and my parents. And, you know, like, that that doesn't have, like, the same um, sort of viral uh, shareability to it, <laughs> where people are like, look at this awesome story. This lady's just living with cancer because she believes in herself. <laughs> like, right. like, there's sort of, like, this external... Um, like validation of having someone else to live for. Yeah. And even the way you spend your time, like I, I actually had a friend my age who had breast cancer. She was diagnosed two months before all my shit went down and she, um, she had two kids. And so she, you know, the, the silver lining for her was that she spent a bunch of time with them during that time. Right. And so that what, that's always your focus as a mother. And so that was her focus. And that's beautiful, right? So, you know, I had friends, I heard rumblings that, you know, um, we want to do like that meal thing for Rachel. And I was like, guys, I'm not sick, though. <laughs> I'm not. I'm what I am is miserable. And so my messaging was, uh, I don't want your lasagna. In fact, the only thing I had to do for myself was make dinner. So please don't um, take that from me. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I don't want your lasagna. What I asked from everyone was, I just need to hang. I need you to hang out with me. I want to hang out. Don't drop something off. Like, invite me to dinner. <laughs> Rachel doesn't have kids. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a love of her life. But that doesn't mean she doesn't have something. I mean, this first step is to accept the disease. Like, this is my life, and I have to accept it. Um, and then it was like taking stock of, well, then what am I going to do, and how am I going to do this? And also, who else am I? Who am I? And, you know, what I was was a single woman. And by way of being a single woman, I had, like, this extraordinary network of friends and dudes. And what I thought my shortcoming or something I was somewhat ashamed of, ended up being my greatest strength during that time. Tell me more about that. I had been dating, using Tinder and other things, 
um, for, you know, recent years. So I had uh, a number of guys who were, you know, we'd had some kind of relationship or fling, and then the other guys I was just talking to. So these are all people who are in your life. I mean, I think I'm, I'm no different than any other single person. I think we're all chatting with numerous people at, at any given time. And I think from the outside, it, it looks superficial. Maybe they're superficial, but maybe not. These aren't necessarily anchor relationships in Rachel's life, but they're still relationships. So when Rachel gets another message from Surfer Dude... Hey, babe, what's up? (laughs) And, like, this was the guy I knew the least. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't been in touch. Um, It's just that I've had some real serious medical stuff come up. And he wrote back, oh, shit, babe. (laughs) Are you okay? Who's taking care of you? What are you doing right now? Can I take you to dinner? And so, like, old me would have said, would have made an excuse, right? I don't need to burden this guy. I, besides, don't want to go to dinner because it's going to be hard. Like, so many reasons to avoid. But knew me knew that I should open that door and and see whether he had something I needed, right? I mean, he had something I needed in my normal life. So maybe why not in this in this new reality, I guess. And so we went to dinner, and um, I kind of took a deep breath, and I said, "Um, I have cancer, possibly two, and uh, it's also not the first time. And uh, he said, that's fucking brutal. (laughs) I said, I know. How are you doing? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how I feel. I'm terrified. In the course of that conversation, he told me that his brother had had, um, had just celebrated 10 years cancer-free. And so he'd kind of seen it close up. And that also that in, within the past five years, he'd lost his dad to cancer. And so this for me was like, uh, this was the moment where I realized, you know, this guy's almost 40 sitting across the table from me. Like, he's seen some shit. Everybody's seen some shit. And so they can handle it. And they don't need to have the right words, right? He just, but he didn't run away. <laughs> and then we we proceeded, you know, we dated. We dated. Like, this guy took me on <laughs> with all my crap. And I would do all that stuff with him. We'd go, like, paddleboarding and skiing. And he'd drag me out of the house to have fun. Um, you know, he's a guy who wakes up in the morning and, like, checks the snow report and checks the weather and decides what, you know, what are we going to do? And, like, holy shit, it was the perfect time for me to have someone like that in my life. This is really huge for Rachel. Like, she has this guy who's kind and interesting and wants to do interesting things with her. And she can also be, like, really real with him. But she doesn't have to worry about burdening him either because it's not like he's one of the most important people in her life. Sometimes when things were shitty, 
it felt like if I reached out to someone, then I was acknowledging the shittiness and bringing them into the circle of shit. Letting in that one surfer dude seemed to make it easier to just let people in, to let the people who could be there for her be there for her, however they could be. I don't have stories of any grandiose gestures that any, any one person in my life did for me that was hugely impactful, but, but what I have are so many, so many examples of people showing up and just giving me, giving me of themselves, like being generous with who they are and what they could bring me. So what can a bunch of strangers bring you? Whatever you'll let them. Because Surfer Dude, he was just one dude in Rachel's life. This is my life. I'm not waiting for six months from now when I'm out of it. I was like, I don't want this year to suck. How do I make it not suck? This is how Rachel made the sucky stuff not suck. It's smart as in it makes sense logistically, and it is smart emotionally. Like, even if you are happily coupled up, we're not built to get everything we need from one person. We're not built to just carry one person on our backs through the fires of Mordor. Um, (laughs) It does. We do need our village. Actually, if you want to know more about that topic, you should just listen and read Esther Perel. She's smarter about it. You'll learn a lot. But you do. You need more than just one person to get through hard stuff. And it might not even be people. It especially will be people that you do not expect. A guy that I had gone on a few dates with maybe two years prior heard through friends what was going on with me. And he said to our mutual friend, does she know that I had testicular cancer way back when? And can I reach out to her? And my friend said, of course, reach out to her. And this guy also just said, do you want to go out for a beer? Which is well, which was what I wanted, right? No lasagna, yes, beer. I had another friend, another one of these guys, another Tinder guy. He really came to the table. With him, I could go to the real dark place, right? Like, he, he, he would go there. He could, he could talk about death. And then just switch gears, right? And, like, be the funniest guy I know. I mean, the acupuncturist, also a guy I'd gone on a few dates with, we decided that this was a friendship. He was really easy to talk to because all day long um, people are telling him their problems, and so he's a great ear and a good listener, and he also said... I can treat you. And so I said, well, I have no physical symptoms. I'm not sick. But what about my stress? Like, I've never been so anxious in my life. He said, of course. And this became this oasis. Just knowing that I had a place where I could lie down in the middle of the afternoon for 90 minutes and conk out. And also have somebody touch you in a way that, like, is not medical or painful and is also like not sexual but is super intimate I love acupuncture so much yeah yeah I also always fall asleep it's very odd 
Yes. Yeah. And I always snore when I'm on my back. I am also a back snorer, which is a sensual thing about me. And I am also a person who knows that romantic love does not create this Harry Potter cloak of invisibility to protect you from suffering. And while it's easy for some people to dismiss Rachel's story as like, I don't know, just another lady who needs validation from men or, I don't know, to think that dating is a shallow pursuit when you're sick and you're supposed to, like, act sick. I don't know. I'm trying to illustrate how dumb the critiques are that Rachel has gotten. And she has gotten some because she wrote a very good piece about this time in her life and it appeared in a little newspaper called the Washington Post. And what was lost on those critics is that dating is very normal and that when you're sick, sometimes all you want to be is normal. When you've had your life interrupted, when you're not sure what version of your life will come to be, normal is a perfectly okay thing to want. I felt like I had disappeared. And so their attention, the men was not affirming my appeal. They were affirming my existence. I knew I was there. (laughs) I could see what they could see. It didn't matter if I was hot and sexy. It was just that I was there. And I was still who who I used to think I was. Rachel was still who she used to think she was. And she's still that Rachel now, a few years later. She's now cancer-free again. She's a successful woman. She lives in L.A., which she had always wanted to do. She's living the life that she imagined again. And she knows that it could change at any time. Again. Tomorrow, she could be sick. Again. Tomorrow, she could find the one, or one of the ones. But even if I fall head over heels tomorrow, that's not how the story ends. Like, that that won't be everything. I know that very clearly now. It's something I want, but it's not everything. And I'm okay. Like, I'm, I'm really good right now. Are you still in touch with any of these guys? Oh, absolutely. I was texting with two of them a couple days ago. And I was like, oh, my story continues. Like, I'm still in it. The, the Tinder guys persist. Yeah, I mean, they've all become really good friends. And they're still giving me what they always gave me, you know? Why those men had such a significant impact on me during that time and and helped me so much was because the time I spent with them one-on-one with these acquaintancy guys or just guys I had known in that way um, was the most normal time I had. It was the most normal thing I was doing during this year of shit and horror. (laughs) This episode does not end with a wedding to surfer dude and it doesn't end with rachel finding love with 
any of these other Tinder guys. It ends with Rachel in the city she wanted to live in, working in the career she wanted. It ends with Rachel being healthy and with us sharing her story on this podcast and all of us hopefully reflecting a little bit on what our expectations are for romantic love and how we define a successful relationship. Because I, for one, I know for a long time, I considered a successful relationship for myself to be one that ended in marriage. Like, I've only married two guys, not out of two either, which Hans told me would be a very good batting average, would be like a what, million percent? The best batting average anyone had ever seen. No, that's two out of countless, which would be a bad batting average. It would be like, why even put a bat in her hands? Okay? She's just going to strike out. I believe that is baseball. <laughs> right? Okay. So, I don't know. I've only, like I said, I've only married two guys. So, does that mean that all those other relationships were failures just because I didn't marry them? No, they were failures for other reasons. But Rachel has truly one of the best dating stories I've ever heard because it's such a good life story. It's about knowing yourself and what you need and letting yourself get it, even if it doesn't look the way you thought it would or the way anyone else thinks it should, even if it makes strangers on the internet comment weird things at you. There are lots of people going through sickness and suffering all alone, even though they're married. And there are plenty of single people who are lonely too, and there are plenty of single people who know what Rachel knows, that if you cast your net far and wide, that can be a pretty great way to turn it into a safety net. One person may drop the piece they're holding, but more people means more hands to pick up the slack. If our definition of romantic success is marriage or nothing, long-term relationship, or I guess I'm just a failure, it doesn't really leave much space for other good things. And there are so, so many other good things. You could tell yourself the story that you're alone, or you can look around and see that you're absolutely not. I'm Nora McNerney, and this has been Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our senior producer is senior producer? Producer, yeah. Producer. We made a new name. Producer, like a podcast producer. Okay. Facial feedback I'm getting is not good. Senior producer, producer, is Hans Buto. Thank you to Meg Martin, Mark Sanchez, and Hannah Meacock Ross for listening to this episode before everyone else. You're very kind to do that. And thanks, Rachel, for sharing this story with us. She's on Twitter at Rachel Moscovich. You know what I'm trying to do lately is offer good recommendations for books that I like that are related to the topic of our shows. I don't know. It just seems relevant. Relevant. If it's relevant to your interest, I'm going to say it. So if the notion that a woman could be a whole and complete person without a significant other is interesting to you, um, I have a book that you could read. It's called No One Tells You This. It's a new memoir by Glynis McNichol, who had the 
audacity to be a 40-year-old unmarried woman with no children and enjoy her life. It's really good. We are produced by American Public Media, and our theme music, which everybody loves, especially me, is by Joffrey Wilson. <laughs>